Well, welcome to this teaching on the fallen nature and redeemed nature of mankind. This is a continuation of the discussion of anthropology based on timeless universal principles revealed in scripture. And today we're going to focus in on the reality of the fallen condition of mankind. So let's begin by taking a look at a text out of Ephesians chapter 2 and ask ourselves this question. Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you are a sinner? Which is it? Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? Well, let's just uh, read what the Apostle Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and see if we can get some clarity on how to answer this, this question. He writes, and you, and he's writing to the Ephesian believers that he spent over three years discipling himself. And he had a very intense, arguably the most intense discipleship initiative other than the one Jesus had over three years. This was Paul's three-year initiative. He met every day for two years, every day, to take the disciples through the understanding that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Now, what does that mean for the scripture? How do we understand the scripture in light of that? And I probably took him two years to really go through every text of the Old Testament, which was their scripture, to explain the, the implications and the meaning of the fact that Jesus was Lord in Christ. So these, these are the people that he's talking to here. So he says, and you, you Ephesians that I discipled, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, please note that the idea of walking is a word here that implies lifestyle. It's how you lived. Following the course of this world, that's the word cosmos, and that refers to the world system, the world, the order of the world, the cultures of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Now that word prince is the Greek word arche, archaeon. And archaeon refers to the first, the starting point. So uh, probably not a great translation here to call that prince. Um, but that's that's been the popular English translation of it. Just know it's much more profound than just a prince. A prince is generally not the ultimate authority in a realm but in this, in this usage here, <clears throat> Satan and his, is ultimately the authority in the, the realm or the kingdom of darkness under God. So within that kingdom, he is the ultimate authority. So following the prince of the power of the air. Now, the word power there is not the word dunamis, which means power. It's the word exousia, which means power of choice. So it's a little different. <clears throat> so basically, he's saying that you, you Ephesians, you were, prior to coming to Christ, you were in this state called dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked around. That is, you had a lifestyle of living in this state, following basically the systems that Satan has invented and stolen to dominate his empire. This is now the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. In other words, he's talking universally. This is not just the Ephesians. This is everyone. All humanity lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, children destined to judgment like the rest of mankind. This is the idea of total depravity total fallenness in our ability to remedy our fallen condition. We are impotent relative to this problem of sin and death. So I think we can answer the question now. Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you are a sinner? I think it is the latter. You sin because fundamentally by nature you are a sinner given to a lifestyle of rebellion against God and alignment with, with Satan and his minions. That is the base nature of mankind in a fallen condition. Going on here, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive with Christ. So he's talking to people who are biologically alive, but he's saying that they're dead, they're born dead, but they also have the capacity to be made alive. So now remember all the time, both in both of those states, they're biologically alive. So he's not talking about biological life. He's talking about spiritual life. So it is by grace, he says, you have been saved, saved from this state of being a sinner, by nature a sinner. By grace you've been saved through faith and raised, he's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about our position. We're born dead, spiritually dead. We're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and now we are we have been adopted into the family of God. So that's the idea of being seated with Christ. We are part of his family. We're part of him. So that's the concept he's going for here. And now he, in verses 8, 9, and 10, he summarizes things. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of work, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So faith is not a human work. And when you demand that faith is your choice, you're making it a human work. But that's, that is now a, in contradiction to what this text is saying. This saying, this text is telling us that some way or another, you must be empowered by grace. And grace refers to the gift. You are empowered by grace to be able to express faith. The faith that you express doesn't come from yourself. It comes from your empowered self. So the way we most theologians understand this is that you are regenerated by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit, according to John 3. And once you're regenerated, the Spirit of God is in you. Life is in you. You're now been adopted into the family of God and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now you have the capacity to be able to express faith. You didn't choose that faith. The Holy Spirit inspired and empowered that faith in you. Now, what's the purpose? For we are his workmanship. God has created us. He's made us the way he wants us to be to do what he's created us to do. We're created in Christ Jesus for works, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is a powerful reality of why we come to Christ. Most today seem to think they come to Christ <clears throat> to escape sin and death and the penalty of sin and death in the, in the lake of fire. Well, yes, that is part of it, but that's not all of it. It's much bigger than that. And we have to learn to think bigger. So we have to recognize that works has a place in the new covenant. In the old covenant, works had a place as well, but their place was different. In the old covenant, works were the way to justification and salvation. The problem is that we can never do enough good works to actually make that efficacious. In the new covenant, where Christ is doing the work for us, that takes care of the problem of our inability to self-save. Christ has saved us by doing the works that we could never do. And the Father has now imputed the work of Christ on us. And he's turned around and imputed our sin on Christ. So Christ paid the penalty for our sin. That's the double imputation of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we have here a, an incredible picture of the grace of God and how he's chosen to redeem fallen mankind. And fallen mankind is not redeemed to do whatever they want to do. Fallen mankind is redeemed to be a servant of Christ, redeemed to fulfill a work assignment that God has created them from all eternity to do. So this is the distinction between the fallen and redeemed natures. The fallen nature is our base nature, but we're born with this, dead in trespasses and sins, 
and unable, impotent to do anything about it. And the redeemed nature is the gift of God by grace to enable us now to begin to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ, and to fulfill a work assignment out of gratitude for what God has done for us. So we work in the new covenant not to gain acceptance with God. We work because we have been accepted with God by virtue of the work of Christ. So that's the distinction. You've got to be very clear on that. Otherwise, uh, it will be difficult and you won't be able to handle uh, even simple objections. So I'm going to offer you some thoughts, some more thoughts. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a quote from one of the famous uh, theologians of history. This is Francis Turretin. Francis Turretin was a 17th century theologian. 17th century was a time, um, particularly the early part of the century, when theology was really big, important. People spent a lot of time thinking, reading, studying, learning, trying to understand what theology the Holy Spirit has given us the grace to understand. And so he has written a statement here that's regarded by at least one church historian that I heard to be a really profound statement on the relationship between faith and works. Recognizing the old covenant, works was, was what you had to do to be justified. And of course, the old covenant reveals we could never do it. Even though that was put in front of us, here, do this and you'll be justified and we, no, mankind could never do it. And then you have in the new covenant, God in his mercy and grace saying, I know you can't do it, so I'm going to do it for you and I'm going to impute it to you. So now you work there not to gain acceptance with God, but you work because you're grateful for the gift that you've been given in being accepted with God. So let's read Turretin's statement on this. I'll just uh, read it verbatim here. Nor can it be objected here that faith was required also in the first covenant and works are not excluded in the second. You see, it's very easy to think that, well, the old covenant is all about works, the new covenant is about faith. Well, yes, but you got to understand there was faith there along with works in the old covenant and the new covenant also has faith and works, both. So he's trying to make this point that you've got to be clear on what this distinction is. He says, they stand in a far different relation to each other, for in the first covenant, faith was required as a work, a human work, and a part of the inherent righteousness which life was promised. But in the second covenant, it is demanded not as a work on account of which life is given, but as a mere instrument apprehending the righteousness of Christ on account of which alone salvation is granted to us. It's a response. Faith is a divinely empowered response to the gift of eternal life. In the one, faith was a theological virtue from the strength of nature terminating on the God, on the God, uh, God create the creator. And keep in mind in that situation there, no one ever did it. No one was ever able to achieve that theological virtue of faith in the old covenant. On the other, on the other, which is the new covenant, faith is an evangelical condition after the manner of supernatural grace terminating on Christ, the Redeemer. You see, now we're empowered to be able to believe by the Holy Spirit. It isn't us. It's us responding, saying, thank you. We are your servants. As to works, they were required in the first, that is the first covenant, as an antecedent condition by way of a cause for acquiring life. But in the second, they were only the super subsequent condition as the fruit and effect of the life already acquired. In the first covenant, they sought to precede the act of justification, or they ought to. In the second, they follow it. So works in the second covenant are the validation of the reality that you have been born again and indeed the life of God is in you. Okay, so that's some theological understanding of faith and works, and it's important you get this, and you are able to articulate this because you're going to have all kinds of objections because today, generally, people are not very theologically trained. They don't understand faith and works and the relationship in verse, the Old Covenant versus the New. They don't get that very well, so you need to be able to articulate that as a good theologian.
So now let's talk about the redeemed nature some more. And I want to talk about specifically the three tenses of salvation. To understand the redeemed nature, that is the redemption from spiritual orphanity. So think about that. You have been, you're born a spiritual orphan. You're born dead in trespasses and sins. That's a state of orphanity. So to understand the redeemed nature, where we're redeemed from that, you have to consider the tenses of salvation, which means salvation is not an event. It's a process. We typically treat it as an event. We will talk about, well, so-and-so is saved, like he's had the event of being saved. Well, uh, there's a sense in which there is an event of salvation, but there's much more than that. So can we, can we think bigger? Let's try to think a little bit bigger about this. So let's just take one example of where you see the three tenses of salvation in, this, in the New Covenant. And I'm going to read to you Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Now, notice I've got colors on here. The green is a, stands for the indicative mood. It means that means whatever the verb is that's green is in the indicative mood. The indicative mood in the Greek language means it's a fact. Okay. Then we have yellow. Yellow is the imperative mood in the Greek language, and that means it's a command. So we have the indicative, the, the fact, and we have the imperative, a command. So hopefully you realize if something's a fact, it's not, you're not commanded to anything. You just, this is a fact. It's like when you're born again, you're adopted in the family of God. That's a fact. But you have some commands that you have to follow. So that's why it's important that you understand faith and works in the new covenant correctly. So the three tenses of salvation, you see, I've got, I've got green under past, which means regeneration. That's, that's a fact. That means you had nothing to do with it. You didn't earn it, deserve it, or anything. It's just given to you. That's grace. Then you see the future tense, which is glorification. Again, that's a fact. That's something the Holy Spirit does sovereignly, and we have nothing to do with it. But the middle tense, the present tense, is in yellow. Because we have a, a, a command from the Father to grow up in Christ, to mature in Christ, to fulfill the purpose of God. So that's present tense. So it's all three tenses describe what we call salvation to be. And this is why salvation is a lifelong process. It is not a momentary event. So I encourage you, be more biblical in your thinking and your talking about this. So now let's read the text here. Verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. It reads then, if you've then been raised with Christ. So now you see I've got green here, meaning this is an indicative mood. It's, it's referring to what happened in the past. What happened in the past when you were regenerated is you were raised with Christ. In other words, the resurrection of Christ, you know, was a picture of us being resurrected from a dead orphan state. And now we've been placed into the family of God as a son and a daughter of the king. So that's past tense. You have nothing to do with it. You can't make it happen. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's a free gift. Now that ought to just fill your heart with thankfulness that if you have that gift, because it's, it's an incredible gift. It's the greatest gift you could ever give or ever receive. Now the next phrase, we're continuing on in verse 1. With the present tense, we have now an imperative, a command. It says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. So here we have commands. And these are things that are given to us in the present tense. And present tense in the Greek language referred to continuous action. So you continually are doing these things. It's, there's never a time when you don't, yet you stop seeking or stop setting. You continually are doing these things over and over again, growing and developing and maturing in your capacity to live as a Christian. And then we go to verse three. We go back to the past tense. For you have died, that's indicative mood, means it's a fact. You died. You died, that is your old nature died. 
that sinful nature that's in rebellion against God, that orphan nature, it died. That was a fact. Now, the problem is that orphan nature can be dead, but the habits associated with that orphan nature are still very much with us. Remember, Christianity is a lifestyle. Christianity is not a ticket to heaven. It's not a fire insurance policy. It is a lifestyle. When you were born, you're born into a lifestyle of rebellion against God. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're born again. And now you're given the capacity to live a lifestyle, progressively growing in the ability to live like Christ. So that means as you're progressively growing in your ability to live well, you are dying progressively to the way you used to live. You're changing your habits and your practices. But you have to know that positionally you've died, and now in practice you have to grow into that capacity, which is why you seek the things above and you set your mind on things above so that you can grow and mature. And then it goes on in verse 3 into the future tense. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now that's a very interesting, and I gave you more of the Greek here. It's the perfect tense indicative mood. Indicative means it's a fact. Perfect tense means something happened in the past and whatever that was, it was completed. Completed action in the past that has ongoing consequences. The imperfect tense is in uncompleted action in the past that has ongoing consequences. But, com but perfect is completed action in the past. The work of Christ was completed what he did for us to give us this grace has been done. So we have to be very clear on that. Perfect tense means that we are living out the reality of the work of Christ in us. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's looking ahead to the future. That's going to take place in the future, and that's, it's not specified exactly when and what are the details. We just know it's going to take place in the future. Those who really have been redeemed will live in this reality of the three tenses of salvation. All right, so now we want to focus in on and use the rest of our time to talk about the process of sanctification, which is where we have a, a command to synergistically work with the Spirit of God. We can't synergistically save us ourselves. That's the sovereign work of God. That's grace. But once you are in, in the family of God, you have been born again, you begin to express faith in Christ, you begin to walk out a Christian worldview in your life, then you have things to do that you're responsible to do, commands, imperatives. So it's important that we understand a Christian life does include responsibilities that we have to do. So we're going to just read about about 13 verses here that deal with this. And you can see there are multiple places where yellow pops up. And the yellow means that you have a command here. So let's start out here in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he rattles off five things right off the bat that we have an imperative to put to death. We have a command, put it to death. He doesn't talk to us in detail about how to do that. He just says, you need to do this. He goes on, verse six, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, the wrath of God is coming because we are sinners by nature. And sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, are just manifestations, outward manifestations of this inward sinful condition that we are all born into. And once you have been born again, you're now being delivered from the practices of that old nature and being trained into the new practices of the new nature. He goes on to verse seven, in these you want you too once walked, referring to your lifestyle, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Another imperative, put them away. He said, put to death. Now he says, put them away. So he's saying very similar things. Now he's going to give us a different list. He says, put away all anger, wrath, malice, 
slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Furthermore, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That word there, practices, comes from the Greek word praxis. It's, uh, so the English word is a derivative of the Greek word. It's telling us these things that you, you did, your, your habits, your patterns, your way of thinking and way of living, it's got to go. It's got to be conformed to your new nature. You're, you've been adopted into the family of God. You're a son or a daughter of the king. You've got to learn how to live that way. You have to learn how to think that way, how to talk that way, how to make choices that way. So this is the command we have to work with the spirit who's in us to empower us to begin to build new habits, a new lifestyle. So people will look at you and see you live differently. Christianity is a call to live Christ-like. And so we have to learn to do that. That is not something that's automatically taken care of when you're regenerated. Regeneration is an entrance into the process of sanctification. And so we have responsibility here. He goes on in verse 11. Here, referring to this new self that's being renewed after the image of the creator, here there is not Greek or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So this is referring to ontological equality. Now, if you read other books like Galatians chapter 3, you see that we're ontologically equal in terms of our ethnicity, in terms of our gender, and in terms of our socioeconomic condition. All of those things before Christ are meaningless. We're all the same. We are all created by God to serve him. There's no one better than another. That's the point here. And so it's, it's recognizing Christ is it. He's the exalted one. All the rest of us are simply his servants. It does not matter whether you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter whether you're barbarian, Scythian, slave, free or what. It just simply matters that you are in Christ. That's it. Now we have the next imperative. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Well, obviously we have another list of, of things that we have to think about and consider. Put on then as God's elect, that's the word chosen one, is the word electos in, in Greek. It's God, God chose us. We got to be very clear because this is hard for us. We, we keep thinking we choose Christ and we talk that way. And you hear testimonies of people about how they chose Christ. Well, they just don't really understand the truth very well. They're very infants in their thinking. You need to grow up and become mature and realize that God is the one controlling his universe. We don't have the ability to thwart God's will. If therefore God never learns anything, he's never surprised by anything, that means no one can just arbitrarily do something. Things are done in accordance with the plan and purpose of God. And that's just that we don't like that. We human beings want to think we choose. And that's just another way to deny grace is all you're doing. When you really get grace, you realize you didn't choose. God chose you. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, you didn't choose me. I chose you. That's really difficult. That just violates our, our normal modern thinking, which happens to be wrong. And we have to conform to what scripture says here. And we're, we're told here, as chosen ones, we're holy, which means we're set apart for God. We're beloved by God. And we're told now that we are to put on compassionate hearts. Now, please don't hear uh, a extreme emphasis here as if we are to be very merciful toward every situation. No. Compassionate hearts means that I have compassion toward every human being and I want to love them biblically. And the way you do that is always seek to sacrificially serve the purpose of God in them. That is 
biblical love. It's hard. Uh, we don't we don't think of love like that yet. Like that, we think of love as uh, feeling, you know, you know, and just being accepting and and toleration and all of this. And that's what the world wants you to think. That's thinking like the world. That's not thinking Christ-like. We have to understand God is about bringing everything into alignment with himself. And there are things that he has created that will be judged. And so they will never come into alignment with him. They will be eliminated. And that's just, we have to know that that reality does not negate compassion. You've got to find a way to harmonize compassion with the reality of judgment. So, be careful here because this is an easy way to get distorted, get twisted, get confused. And you want to get spiritual fathers and mothers around you to help you understand how to properly have a compassion heart. Also, you need to understand kindness and humility. You know, humbles to think lowly. Kindness is always being trying to be virtuous in every situation, which is God defining the virtue. Being meek. Meek is a really interesting word because it means to always think and realize that God is working good in every situation. And that can be really hard when you see pain and suffering and difficulty. It's, it's challenging to be meek, but we are called to be meek. Put on meekness, put on patience, forbearance, bearing with one another. Okay, If you've got a complaint and you, you will be offended at some point or you will have a complaint against somebody at some point, forgiving them. Just releasing that offense because remember, God has forgiven you. You know, we have forgiveness in the scripture used in two ways. It's used in the sense of sanctification, which is referring to our relationships in this existence where we want to be forgiving, keep short accounts, things like that. But it also speaks of eternal forgiveness, which means we have eternal life because we're forgiven all of our sins and they're not held against us, which would keep us from eternity. So we have two senses of it here. It's, it's talking about our relationship with other human beings of, of keeping short accounts and being kind and compassionate to one another and patient with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you also must forgive. That's an imperative again. Sometimes the imperatives are not, not in the imperative mood. They can be in another mood, but it's clear it's a command. We have a command to forgive. And above all these things, put on love. That's agape love, which binds them everything together in perfect harmony. Remember, the greatest command was to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And the second greatest command was to love your neighbors yourself. So this is biblical love, sacrificially serving the purpose of God and another. All of these traits, these virtues of Christianity that should characterize our lifestyle are synthesized under the virtue of love. And in verse 15, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule. Again, this is a command, an imperative. Let it rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. That's a fact. You were called by God. You didn't call yourself. You didn't choose. God called you. That is a fact. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that's, that's a command we all have. We will labor all of our lives through the power of the Spirit to get to where we can more and more live in the reality of, this, of, this, of our hearts being at peace, at peace with Christ, because he's solved the problems of life. He is the ultimate reference point for all of life. He is the one to whom we will give an account in the end. And he's the one that's redeemed us from the penalty of sin and death we should, this is, brings great peace when we really see it correctly. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Not only let the peace of Christ be in you, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, another imperative. And he says, tells us how to do this. He gives us an example of how to do this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your heart. Now, you see this word thankfulness appears a couple of times here. You can see verse in verse 15, it, it's the Greek word Eucharistos. We get Eucharist from that, which is the Lord's Supper. This is kind of an outward expression of thankfulness. Whereas in 
Verse 16, the word for thankfulness, is charis, grace. Now, I hope you, you recognize immediately that you see charis in the word eucharistos. You'll see it very carefully. You have a prefix there, eu, which means good or well, in front of the charis. So basically, eucharistos is a intensified word based on charis. So the idea of grace and thankfulness are knitted together. And perhaps a way to think about this is when it's just charis, it's referring to our internal heart of gratitude. When it's eucharistos, it's our thankful expressed by actions that reflect our thankful heart. I think that's a good way to think about it. That's like worshiping God in spirit, spirit internally and in truth externally. So it's a good way to think about it. Faith without works is dead is another way to think about that. So this is what music is to do, at least in part, is to teach sound doctrine and correct error, which means it's important that the lyrics of the songs be theologically accurate. Sadly, today we've gotten kind of sloppy here, and we have a lot of music today that doesn't reflect much theological truth. And I think part of that is we've got a disdain for 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 education and knowledge. We we try to try to make Christianity really simple. And when you try to make it really simple, then you water things down, you dilute things, and your ability to understand fine distinctions of truth, uh, they, they're eliminated, or at least impaired. They may not be eliminated, but they're impaired. So we need to be very serious about our musicians should be very good theologians. They should be well trained and they should be held to the account high accountability because our music needs to reflect truth. And we need to be willing to put out admonition, challenge people that are doing something that we know is not lining up with God and challenging them to line up with God. So this is how we have to learn to function with music. And this is different. We're not generally used to this. We're used to just feeling good that we think music's all about emotions. No, music is about helping us change our thinking. We have to get our thinking right before we can live right. If we let emotions be the whole thing in Christianity, you, you never get grounded. You get grounded by thinking right, and along the way, you have some wonderful experiences with the Lord. You can't build your life on experiences. You build it on knowing the Lord. Everything you need for life and godliness, according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, everything you need comes from knowing the Lord. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, to know the Father, and we know the Father through knowing the Son. So this is uh, these are challenging concepts that we need to go back and capture. They're biblically-based concepts that help us live as solid believers before Christ, fulfill our responsibility to obey the commands of Christ. And verse 17 kind of synthesizes, summarizes it all. And whatever you do, in word or deed, and that word deed is a word for work. Uh, sometimes we think of deed as referred to like a, a boy scout helping an old lady across the street. That's a good deed. We think about that. That's not the sense of this here. The sense here is whatever you say and whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks. This is Eucharistio, which is the verb form of Eucharistos, okay, which means it's an outward expression. We're living and working and talking and prioritizing and choosing, you know, representing Christ in everything. And we're doing it with gratitude, great gratitude. So this is the kind of a glimpse at the lifestyle of a Christian. It's a lifestyle of obeying commands of Christ, not to be saved, but because you're already saved. It manifests evidence of the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right, so here's just a summary table here, summarizing the things put off, put on, put off the, the old nature, put on the new nature. And so this, we went through these, these ideas here in Colossians 3. So they're just in a form here of a table for you to look at. I've got an exercise at the end based on this, but you need to be able to you know, see this and meditate on it and ask the Lord to give you grace to really understand it. And I want to give you another way to think about this. And this came from the great patron, St. Augustine, fourth century theologian, 
who was uh, part of um, he was part of the great movement in the third and fourth century as Christianity was legalized for the first time. The persecution stopped. The church could, could begin to meet and begin to hammer out the theology of Christianity, which for the first 300 years, um, it, it hadn't been formalized, but it got formalized in the third and fourth centuries. Constantine, excuse me, fourth and fifth century. Constantine legalized Christianity. Constantine was the emperor of Rome uh, in 325, and he convened the first church council in 325, and I think he paid for it. And I believe he built the first building that was dedicated to be a Christian meeting building. So uh, he was very engaged in helping the Christians get started. So Augustine was part of this, and one of his great works is called The City of God. And in The City of God, he contrasts the city of man and the city of God. So what I've done is just a little quick table with about eight or nine traits here showing you the distinctions between the city of man and the city of God. So the city of man on your left uh, is symbolized by the Tower of Babel. It's the kingdom of darkness. It is obviously the prince of the power of the air, which is, is the, the spirit of Antichrist. Satan and his minions are the ones that run this kingdom. And then you have the city of God, which is this is the born again believers, those who know Christ, who have been regenerated, who are now adopted in the family of God. They're no longer orphans. They now live as sons and daughters of the king. And that's living beyond Babel. That's my terminology referring to how to think about living beyond Babel. Living in the Tower of Babel, you're, all, you're always living for yourself and self-glory. Living beyond Babel, you're never living for yourself. You're living for Christ and for his glory. So just these traits here real quickly. In, in the left hand, which is the city of man, you have death is the default state. In the right hand, you have life, which is the redeemed state. Then the attitude in the city of man is always pride and arrogance. In the city of God, it's going to be humility. Grace. You have common grace in the city of man, which is a gift that God has given to all humanity to be able to survive in a fallen condition. But it is not salvific. You need special grace for rege regeneration, for being saved, for being part of the family of God. And so... In the beyond Babel state or city of God state, you have that special grace. You don't have that in the city of man. Then you have the source of wisdom. Worldly wisdom is, is the characteristic wisdom you find in the city of man. And worldly wisdom includes wisdom stolen from the city of God. You see, if all you had was worldly wisdom and no real truth, it, it's never going to work. You've got to steal some truth and and mix it in with your worldly wisdom to give your worldly wisdom credibility. But ultimately, it's not going to work. And ultimately, what will work is the wisdom of God. And that's what's in the city of God. The city of man focuses on human potency. What is that is fallen mankind can do in and of himself. You hear people talking about what mankind can do. Man can do anything man sets his mind to do. You hear that kind of thing. That's just folly. It's just Spirit of Antichrist, you know, talking through people. Divine potency is what we all need. The Holy Spirit in us, divinely empowering us, transforming us, bringing us into alignment with Christ, maturing us. That is real power. That's power to be free from sin and death, to be able to serve the purpose of God. You don't have that in the city of man. You only have that in the city of God. The metric for success in the city of man, it's homo mensura, which is man the measure. Man thinks he can redefine everything, which we are doing that in spades right now around the world, redefining life, redefining marriage, redefining um, sexuality, gender identity, all of these things that as if we can, and we can't. This is just gonna, not going to go well at all. It's going to lead to more and more intense judgment. In case you hadn't figured out, we are under judgment. And it's just going to get worse. And you've got to know you've been created for a role in this particular time to fight these battles. And you have Desmensura, God the measure, God's metrics, God's standards, God's definitions to help you make choices. So that's the beauty of what we have in the city of God. We know what God wants and we're in his universe and what he wants will get done. Not what man wants. Then you have the motive in the city of man, the motive is all about man's will. In the city of God, it's about God's will. And finally, success 
in the city of man is only temporal. You might might have power, you might have some money, you might have some influence, you know, might have a following. Yes, but that's going to mean nothing in the end. Real success is eternal success. Basically winning the battle of sin and death and you want it through Christ. So you'll be delivered from that penalty of sin and death ultimately. You may in this, this moment suffer, but that's okay. Because God will use that suffering to make you better, to strengthen you. Also, I've got another little tool here that you might find interesting. It's the four quadrant tool, which talks about the will of man versus the will of God and the ways of man versus the ways of God. And you can see uh, we start out in a fallen state where we're trying to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. Uh, and that won't work. And you, mankind figured out very quickly that wouldn't work. So we have to go to another state. So the first state we pick will do our will using God's ways, which is what they did in the Tower of Babel. Or we will try to do God's will, but use our ways. This is what David did when he moved the ark, trying to move the ark to Jerusalem. Is He was trying to do something that was the will of God, but he was trying to use man's ways. And that's a fascinating story if you haven't looked at that in 2 Samuel 6. I encourage you to look at that. But all, all three of these are, are wrong. They're flawed. The only way to live in God's universe properly, under the blessing of God, under the favor of God, aligned with the will of God, is to be aligned with the ways of God as well. In fact, I like to put it this way. You need to be aligned with the will of God, done the ways of God, and the timing of God for the glory of God. Now you're aligning well. That's what you were created and called to do, is to live like that. And you're empowered to do that. And you have scripture that's illuminated to you to help you grow up in your thinking so that you can live at the level God has called you to live at. Never perfectly, but increasingly getting more and more Christ-like. That's what we should do as long as we're in this existence. Now, I want to just give you an example of the fallen nature. As I was preparing these notes, I got an email from uh, one of my students, uh, a lady that I've worked with over the years uh, in a number of settings. And she happens to work for a retailer, a drugstore chain, a big chain here in the United States. And she just uh, was having some experiences one week and decided she would share them with me. So that's what she wrote. So she, I'm just going to read what she says here. She said, I sometimes feel like I'm on a battlefield at work. For example, I got stuck between two screaming women yesterday, women old enough to know better. My boss had to step in. And this lady is a very mild-mannered lady. She's very calm and she's very soothing and sweet and kind. And so you can see her between two screaming ladies. Yeah, that's going to be a difficult thing for her. And so she's experiencing the fallenness of mankind. And I don't know if these screaming ladies profess to be Christians or not, but they might. They might profess to be Christians. They might go to attend churches. But the reality is they're not looking like Christ. They need to be in that process of growing up and maturing in Christ. And they don't doesn't look like they're very far in it. And then you have another example, theft. People steal from us. That's the retail drugstore every day. I don't know what's going on in wherever you live, but in the United States, lawlessness is setting in and retail theft is exploding. Retailers are, are beginning to actually close stores in some of the worst locations, worst meaning the, the places where law and order is least available, where you can't protect your merchandise, you can't protect your employees, you can't protect your stores. And so increasingly companies are closing stores down. What's happening with this particular drugstore from my, my student here is we have fewer products available. And the prices on the products we do sell have to be increased to compensate for the theft. She's very well aware of the impact of this theft. People go online to buy items cheaper. The items are quite often stolen from our store and thousands of other stores across the country. <clears throat> what is the cause of both of these situations? Well, it's very simple. People can no longer tell the difference between right and wrong. She recognizes that the, the base nature of man, of fallen mankind, to live in that fallen state is enormously powerful. Only Christ can deliver us from it. And it appears that fewer and fewer people 
are being delivered today. So increasingly, lawlessness is kicking in. Orphanities, which this is an expression of orphanity, inhumanity impacts economics. You see, Christianity touches every aspect of life. So let me give you some takeaways here. Salvation is a process described in three tenses. The past tense, which is regeneration. That's the initial event, the sovereign work of the Spirit, to regenerate a person, to bring them to life, to give them a new nature, and instantly they're they're part of the family of God. They're adopted into the family of God. They're sons and daughters of the king. The present tense, which is sanctification, it's a lifelong maturing process that requires synergism between the Holy Spirit and humans. It's a lifelong process of growing and maturing in Christ, a lifelong process of our practices being changed, being actually being reformed. You could say that we're being reformed, so we think and act more like Christ as we should. But this is a process that we never end, never can complete in this existence. It culminates when we are taken into the presence of Christ, which is glorification. That's the future tense. And that's, again, the sovereign pleasure of God. God regenerates and God transfers us into his presence. Christians are mandated to mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ comes through training to obey the commands of Christ. And maturity is best facilitated under the tutelage of godly spiritual parents. So to overcome orphanity, the nature of the orphan, you need Christ. You need the Holy Spirit. And he's also told us you need the word of God and you need spiritual parents to help you along the way. Live in the three tenses of salvation. Grateful for what God has done for you grateful for what he will do for you, grateful for what he's doing moment by moment, even through the challenges of life, because they're intended to make you more Christ-like. And that is very good. So may you have grace and favor to live increasingly in the new nature and to die increasingly to the old nature for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.